welcome to a special COVID Calls episode that is part of a longer series of the program that started yesterday, a deep dive into exploring and reflecting on the first two years of the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Jacob Steer-Williams. I'm a historian of epidemic disease and public health at the College of Charleston, and I'm guest hosting a series of episodes for this special program, this 24-hour program. And you can catch most of them with the regular host and founder of COVID Calls, Scott Knowles. Scott began COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the pandemic with a diverse array of disaster experts on March 16th, 2020. And uh, we're approaching uh, the 500th episode of COVID Calls, which is such an incredible testament to this public history project, this digital archive, which we're launching, and just to sharing and collaborating with so many voices around the world to try to make sense of the pandemic. And for the record, out of those 500 episodes, our call today is number 486. In this episode, I want to do some deep reflections on vaccines, on vaccine ethics, and how the ongoing history of the COVID-19 vaccine might be folded into our deep history of vaccines and other technological interventions. And I'll start with some preliminary thoughts here, but I want to quickly move on to bring our guests in and, and to get their expertise. So yesterday, March 15th, 2022, Pfizer and Biotech submitted an FDA application for emergency use and authorization of an additional booster dose of their COVID-19 vaccine for adults 65 and older who have gotten a booster dose of any authorized vaccine. There's still no FDA-approved COVID-19 vaccination in the U.S. for children zero to five, which includes my, my little one. There is, as my guests here today know well, a much longer history of vaccine development for the coronavirus family. By mid-2020, there were several COVID-19 vaccine trials, ones that built off from previous vaccine research of SARS-CoV, MERS-CoV. On December 11, 2020, the FDA issued emergency youth authorization to use the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine. It was the first of its kind in the U.S. A week later, a Moderna vaccine was approved. And in late February 2021, a J&J &J vaccine added to the list. All of these were for those ages 12 and up. It wasn't until October 29, 2021, that the FDA approved the Pfizer vaccine for children aged 5 to 11. In the months and weeks leading up to December 11th, I remember personally the palpable anxiety of waiting for the vaccine rollout and both what was struck me at the time and now strikes me even more profoundly, the excitement by many of receiving a vaccine and the inherent distrust of others, of not wanting to go first, of not wanting to receive the vaccine. And I remember thinking at that time, and, and I want our guest today to reflect on this as well, now that we have more historical perspective, even if a little the ways in which the history of vaccines and vaccination and technological developments over infectious disease when they're new don't often solve the crisis and how in the case of COVID-19, the COVID-19 vaccine solution, the biotechnology has not solved the crisis. It's now March 2022 and we're still marred, I think, in deeply entrenched debates over the COVID-19 vaccine about efficacy, about global vaccine access and equity, and about public health campaigns in places of widespread availability, like where I am in the US, like where um, Klaus is, and uh, like where many are 
uh, that are watching this program where vaccination rates have been really, I think, quite dismal. The Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center today reported that only 66.4% of Americans have received a full dose of the COVID-19 vaccine in a place where it's widely available and easy to get. Compare that figure to other parts of the world where access to the vaccine has been limited. In Afghanistan, the vaccine rate today stands at 11%. In Sudan, it's 5%. Papua New Guinea, 2.8%. So today on COVID calls, I wanna reflect with these brilliant historians who study vaccines, who study vaccine ethics and mistrust about how to make sense of vaccines and COVID in the long and deep history. So let me bring my guests onto the show today. And here they are. Nadia Durbeck is a professor of history at the University of Utah. She received her PhD from the Johns Hopkins University and is the author of three books on the history of the body in modern Britain. Bodily Matters, the anti-vaccination movement in England, 1853 to 1907, which was published in 2005. The Spectacle of Deformity, Freak Shows in, the modern, in Modern British Culture in 2010. And recently, Many Mouths, The Politics of Food in Britain from the Workhouse to the Welfare State. Thank you so much for being here, Nadia. Klaus Kirschella is Assistant Professor of History uh, with a Wellcome Trust University Award at the University College Dublin. His research focuses on the history of microbes, infectious disease control, and the development and regulation of antibiotics and vaccines. He has authored three books on the history of antibiotics and food production, included Pyrrhic Progress in 2020, Animal Welfare Science and Activism in the book Bearing Witness, 2021, and the book on typhoid control called Typhoid being published this year. He is also co-curator of two multi-award-winning exhibitions on the history of penicillin, one Back from the Dead, and two on typhoid, my personal favorite, Typhoid Land. Klaus, so good to have you here. My third guest is Daniel Goldberg, who's an associate professor at the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado's Anschutz Medical Campus. Trained as an attorney, a historian of medicine, and an ethicist, his work is wide-ranging on issues of public health law and ethics, population-level bioethics, the social determinants of health, chronic disease, and pain. Dr. Goldberg has published in virtually every important venue, I think, including uh, the American Journal of Bioethics, the New England Journal of Medicine, and he's been uh, absolutely at the forefront of our cast to talk about vaccines and vaccine ethics. And I'm just so grateful for you all to take time out of your day, to take time out of the constant um, bombarding of war and, and, and pandemic um, and pandemic forgetting to, to join this intellectual space on COVID calls and, and to do some do some reflecting. So thank you all so much for being here. Nadia, I wanna start with you. So you've written um, so much on the history of, of, of vaccination, of inoculation, of vaccination for smallpox, um, particularly in Britain, but your, your depth and knowledge is so much more wide ranging than, than that about the long history of anti-vaccination. So I wanna start by, by doing a little bit of history here and asking you to reflect on this history. So. Take us back to December 2020 when Pfizer, um, the Pfizer vaccine was first publicly available, and then through 2021, when we've seen a very uneven acceptance um, of the COVID-19 vaccine. What's been going through your mind, and, and how have you been processing this uneven uptick of vaccine, um, vac vaccine either trust or trust in efficacy or rollout? 
or however, however you've been thinking about this in terms of, you know, your historical work? Well, thanks so much for having me here. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, historians never like to predict the future, right? But I think it's safe to say that we all probably had a sense that the rollout was not going to go smoothly and there was going to be resistance. And so I wasn't at all surprised when that happened. And that's especially true because of the political climate um, that, especially in the United States, we were experiencing around that time. We had, you know, a huge um, portion of the population that just doesn't believe in government at all. Another part of the population that was very disenchanted with the administration that was outgoing, and yet another public that was not pleased about the incoming administration. And so it was a really politically volatile climate, which is really a perfect time, I think, for resistance to all kinds of government measures, such as the introduction of a state-sponsored vaccination. We also have a public, I think, really distrustful of science in the United States in particular. And I'd say more specifically, sort of distrustful about the relationship between government and science. And I think what happened, particularly in that kind of transition moment when the vaccine was being rolled out, was that we were getting these really muddled messages, I think, from the public health community, from government scientists, from the CDC. I don't think any of us felt that they were speaking with one voice. And so that really compromised people's trust. But at the same time, I think we're living through this moment in which kind of body issues in particular are really politicized. And I'm just thinking the kind of resurgence of the anti-abortion movement, um, all this government attention and legislation being focused around transgender youth. And so I think vaccination was another one of these issues around the body that make people feel particularly nervous um, that really kind of climaxed in this moment so that when the vaccine was rolled out, which some of us, you know, were really excited about, I was not surprised that much of the population was, if not totally resistant, certainly wary about whether they were going to be the first in line for this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think like, that's, that's exactly how I felt too, of like um, speaking with so many people, whether they were family or friends and, you know, the weeks and months leading up to the vaccine availability in the U S and, and hearing a lot of enthusiasm, no doubt from the kind of circles that, that, you know, are in mind, but, but also some, some skepticism and some, you know, some doubt, um, and, and what was really hard for me, and I wonder if it was hard for you too, is like, <clears throat> you know, there's also this like this history that we study um, where like skepticism over new technological developments in medicine in the body, there's like real reason to be skeptical because of a long history of bioethical failures. And so like, I think like balancing what I think was a lot of people's in, in that early period of the vaccine rollout hesitancy. I, I wanted to be like, it's okay to be hesitant. It's okay to be questioning of this. Um, but now speed that up to March, 2022. And, 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 and I think like I stand in a very different position of, of, of folks that are still unwilling in, in, to get vaccinated, which I don't, which I think is less hesitancy and more unwillingness. And mm -hmm. I wonder if you see that tension um, yourself. 
Oh, I have lots of thoughts on that. Yes, I, I would say I feel exactly the same way that I myself was quite wary at the beginning because I thought, wow, this is a fast rollout. This is a very quick vaccine, um, where it was coming out of, who was sponsoring it, what other kinds of interests might be at play here in these particular companies, um, some who were funded by the government, some who were not, right? And so I felt a lot of that just tension within myself as well. And I fully recognized the skepticism that was coming, particularly from communities that have been marginalized and treated very poorly by um, Western medicine, um, African-American communities, um, people who live in poverty, people who've been experimental communities. And so I thought that that skepticism um, was actually well-placed. Um, I agree with you. I think now we're at a point in which this has been effectively trialed. Um, we've seen in real time how effective this vaccine is, or these multiple vaccines actually are. I was actually a, a recipient of the J&J &J vaccine. And so the news that came out recently, I think yesterday, saying that actually it's holding up pretty well, I was relieved to hear that. Um, but yeah, I think that there, we're in a moment now where I think people cannot rightly say this is new or experimental because we've actually seen it, how it plays out and how it holds up in, in real life um, situations, which is actually how these vaccines have been tested. And I think that was not fully clear to people initially these, you know, when Pfizer and Moderna were reporting these 95% efficacy rates, I'm not sure people fully understood that that was based on real life experience with the amount of COVID that was around at the time. And so now I think we've seen through these huge surges that we've gone through that these vaccines are really effective. And I think people who are resistant are resistant for ideological reasons and will not be swayed. There's a huge portion of people who are committed anti-vaccinators, and I don't think those people are, their minds are gonna be changed. But there's also people who I think, um, I'm sure there's probably a better ethical word for this, but are sort of freeloading off other people's immunity. Um, and I think a lot of people didn't wanna take the risk of the vaccine because they didn't fully understand, I think the ways in which we have all benefited from vaccines over time. The reason why epidemic disease doesn't seem quite so scary to some people is because we haven't seen it, you know? And so I think that some people are still doing what The Economist wrote about back in the 19, late 1990s around the MMR scare. The Economist magazine said the best thing you can do is be an avid proponent of vaccines and then not get it yourself right? That that was actually the best trade-off if you were trying to assess risk. And I think some people are doing that. They're sort of trading off of other people's vaccination status. And it's time really for them to participate in this public health initiative. And what I think of as shared risk, we're all taking the risks um, in stride of, of being exposed to a new technology, the, particularly for people who have the mRNA vaccines. But it's time now to turn those people who are vaccine hesitant, um, but not actually anti-vaccinators into people who are participating in the shared risk. But I think at the same time, I don't think that people who are ardent anti-vaccinators are gonna be convinced because it's ideological and it's part of their identities, part of political identities. Um, and it's, that's not good. I don't think that's gonna be shifted. Mm -hmm. Klaus and uh, and Dan, I wanna, Daniel, I wanna bring you both in here. Um, you both thought a lot about this, about vaccines and um, and I'm really fascinated in this like vaccine freeloader um, ethical question. 
Klaus, you want to jump in on there? Just any reflections? So it's it's really interesting to hear this mentioned. So prior to working in Dublin, um, I worked at the Oxford Martin School with people from the Oxford Vaccine Group who, you know, tested the AstraZeneca vaccine going forward. And this was prior to COVID, and there was a huge amount of debate about vaccine hesitancy already prior to COVID, right? Uh, this isn't a new problem, it's old, but it was also becoming much more pronounced during this, you know, from 2010 really onwards, especially in Europe, lots of debates about pockets of measles outbreaks. Um, uh, I think also a shift in awareness that these pockets were happening no longer just in deprived communities, but actually in, in fairly wealthy white middle-class communities um, and how to deal with this. So I wasn't all too um, surprised that, that we would see vaccine resistance. I think I was surprised by the extent to which we ended up seeing it and also by the politicization of it, uh, with the degree that it suddenly started aligning also in the UK context with voting patterns that you might have seen, uh, you know, following the Brexit referendum, etc. Um, the freeloading question is an interesting one. Um, it's repeatedly mobilized, uh, especially in the case of measles. That's kind of like the classic paradigm where, you know, you can freeload once herd immunity has been reached, you know, you don't have to vaccinate your kids. Um, I think in the COVID case, obviously, the argument doesn't really hold because the vaccines don't prevent transmission effectively. So you're not really freeloading. Um, you know, the, the vaccine, taking the COVID vaccine is very much about protecting your own personal health. With the initial vaccine data that we had, uh, which was gathered with the original COVID variant and then also with the alpha variant, there was blocking of transmission. But I think that the freeloading argument perhaps doesn't hold as well following Delta and Omicron as it might have been initially. But it's an old argument. And um, I mean, it, it obviously, on the one hand, said it, it um stigmatizes communities which might be vaccine hesitant who are then accused of freeloading of uh you know um the, the the civic duty of the other communities who who do it on the other hand um i think it also for for many other infectious diseases other than measles just doesn't hold true biologically uh speaking so i think i think it's a dodgy argument to 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 employ in the public discourse yeah absolutely i was just i was just going back I'm, i've been like doing this deep dive into like 1920s and 1930s epidemiology for this article I'm writing right now. And, um, and it's right at that time when, when British epidemiologists come up with SIR and SIS models for, for disease. And so, you know, what those said was like measles was the classic case where you can, you can be a susceptible individual and then you can be an infected individual, right. Through a community infection. And, and then once you, if you, it, once you get the disease, if you survive, you're conferred, for the most part, immunity, but but for most other infectious diseases, their SIS models like it appears COVID nineteen is so that you are a susceptible person, you get infected, you recover, and and you go back into the susceptible pool at some time, and so you can get reinfected. In other words, and so um, <clears throat> I'm really interested to to bring Dan in here, and that was just an anecdote, but um, but Dan, I want to bring you in because like you work so much and you've written a lot about this very issue, and 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 it in particularly bringing in. Um, some legal ethical frameworks and also thinking about stigma. And I'm really interested to hear your reflections on this point that we're on right now about where, where we're at with, with unvaccinated folks and, and how do we, how does, how does either a, a national framework, a local framework or an international framework um, make sense of that and then also move forward You're on mute, Daniel. 
Of course, if I wasn't on mute, did we actually have a conversation, right? No, I wasn't even, right? If if, if you had a, a web meeting and someone wasn't on mute, did you actually have a web meeting? The answer is no, right? As far as I can tell. So sorry, uh, what I'm saying is that my mind is worrying just with everything Nadia and Klaus and Jacob you've been saying. So I'm gonna try and do the, um, not be a bad academic and actually answer the questions that you asked as opposed to the questions that I was thinking of, right? So, um, um, you know, I think um, from thinking about this from a legal and ethical perspective, I mean, you know, so one of the places I start when I think about this is, as we know, and, and Nadia just talked about this already, um, you know, the in the U.S. at least, vaccine hesitant, vaccine skeptical people, of course, they're not a monolithic group. They're actually quite heterogeneous, right? And we know that. And so the real expert on this is right up the street is Jennifer Reich, actually, the sociologist who's at UC Denver. She's a friend and a colleague. She's right here, um, really close, actually, to where I am physically. Uh, and so, you know, she's written really well about this. So th that question of stigma is really interesting in general, right? I mean, I'm a public health person at heart, which means I'm a ruthless pragmatist, right? And so for me, my only interest is let's get as many people vaccinated as we can. That's it, right? And so I'm only interested in what are the actual practical techniques that are going to enable us to do that, right? And of course, to do that, you have to understand why different communities of people are hesitant to be vaccinated or don't want to vaccinate their kids or whatever it is. You have to understand from where they're coming to be able to vaccinate them. You know, I think... Um, from a stigma and shame perspective, one of the interesting things, and I've written on this with my colleague, Andrea Kida, who's a folklorist and is actually an expert on the folklore of, va of vaccination, one of the world's experts on vaccination folklore. And one of the things we've talked about and we've written about this, but you know, it, it's strange because one of the most prominent vaccine hesitant communities in the US has traditionally been, as Klaus pointed out, right? It tends to be white, um, affluent and very well educated people. And Jennifer's right ethnographic work has helped point that out, right? These pockets prior to COVID of, of the most, the group communities of people who are most likely to be vaccine hesitant, especially with childhood vaccinations, right? Um, tend to be white and educated and affluent, right? And that's interesting from a stigma perspective because stigma is a function of social power, right? And so it's really the groups that are subjected to historical patterns of domination, oppression, and subordination that are most likely to be stigmatized. That's how stigma functions, right? Right. Um, and so these groups that we're talking about here, they're less subject to historical patterns of domination, oppression and subordination, which sort of means. And Dr. Reich has actually pointed this out in her work. It's actually pretty hard to stigmatize these people. Right. Like because their social privileges sort of provide a buffer to any kind of effort to actually shame people into getting their kids vaccinated, assuming that kind of sort of public shaming works to begin with. And I, I think that there's some contest about that. Nadia and class, you may know better than I do. Right. Um, there's some evidence that it can help and some evidence that it can hurt, I think, in terms of getting people, convincing people to get vaccinated. But but I think, you know, th that's what sort of I would say. And I would also say as an ethicist, I'm sort of there's a, 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 an old debate among public health ethicists about whether or not it's ever legitimate to use stigma for public health ends. Like, can we actually ever wield stigma as a tool? And the classic example is, you know, is it okay to stigmatize smokers, right? So that we can reduce the incidence of tobacco consumption and stuff like that. For the record, I'm formally in the camp of people who say that's not okay. And we should never, ever really almost categorically never, right? With a maybe, a, maybe we could come up with some bananas pants exception, right? But basically, you know, almost never stigmatize people as a tool, even in the service of legitimate public health aims, like we have to find other tools. And I'm not convinced that for many of the communities who are vaccine hesitant, shaming them or trying to stigmatize them is going to be effective anyway. I think there's enough evidence to suggest it's counterproductive, right? So those are some sort of thoughts. I'll sort of stop there. Yeah, thanks. Nadia, I want to bring you in too, because like, what, what do you think, like, what have been the patterns of, of the anti-vaccination movement in the past? Yeah, well, I think one thing is really clear is that 
actually the thing that stops anti-vaccinationism in its tracks is providing exemptions to all kinds of mandates that you introduce. So if you're going to have mandates, you have an opt-out um, exemption clause for people who just aren't going to be convinced. And what happened in Britain is as soon as they did that, it brought an end to 50 years of active anti-vaccination campaigning that was loud. It was interfering, interfering with political elections. Like it was very disruptive movement. But as soon as you introduced what they called a conscientious objector clause, it really provided no basis to be against um, this government policy. And so I actually think that if we care about what Daniel's arguing, like how do we get the most people vaccinated? I think actually not um, you know, tightening the screws, but actually saying, we're gonna use these mandates, but we're gonna have an opt-out clause. It's gonna be difficult to get an exemption. You have to jump through some hoops so that it's you know, not more, not less difficult to get an exemption than a vaccination, obviously, but we're gonna make that possible. And that ends really ideological objections. And I think one of the things that's happened in this pandemic is that some people who might've been open to vaccination have because of ideological reasons really double down against it. And so when we remove a lot of the, those kinds of barriers, we stop people from identifying with this as a position that shapes their identity. Um, I think that would actually get more people vaccinated in the end. Um, it, that might be a bit of a controversial position to say, well, have, man, have mandates, but then have all these exemptions to them. But historically, that is exactly what worked to stop the anti-vaccination movement getting really a lot of media attention and really having something to um, push against. It is really interesting. You know, I've been thinking, I've been following this closely and, and, and I've written some public stuff on it as well, but you know, in the, in the, the America, across American universities in the last year who have put in place vaccine mandates, um, almost all of them have come with, with exception op opt-outs, right? Um, and, and those universities, just as one subset of a group that we could study, right? Um, what, we what I found is that very, very small percentages, as you said, Nadia, have actually taken those exceptions in real time. Like the vast majority of un unvaccinated folks have just gotten vaccinated mm -hmm. rather than gone through the actual process of, of exemption. Yeah, Klaus. So to play the devil's advocate, um, yeah, and just, just, you know, to be the usual historian who complicates things further, um, I really think it really depends on the vaccine we're talking about, um, and the disease we're talking about to kind of double down on the point I was making earlier. So Nadia is obviously completely right with regards to smallpox vaccination, but the stigmatization that happens ahead of the first world war with typhoid vaccination in the UK context is obviously the kind of exception that proves the point in the sense that they did not go for a mandate in the British case, but with heavy shaming, you know, to it, it was unpatriotic not to be vaccinated, going to the front. You would be helping the Germans, you know, great word games with germ theory and Germans um, in, in, you know, uh, during that period. And that is an effective, um, and, and Hardy's written beautifully about this, um, you know, masterstroke in, in public campaigning for voluntary uptake of the vaccine with heavy, heavy stigmatization for vaccine refusals. The vaccination movement, even though it's the anti-vax movement, even though it's voluntary, really gears up also against this form of vaccination too. Um, we have this in the Typhoid Land exhibition, you know, with these horrific posters of, you know, death certificates, etc., that are there. So I think it, it really depends quite heavily on the disease we're talking about. And to think about this further, I think also, you know, um, smallpox 
and typhoid, you know, the vaccination procedure of the first vaccines, for example, was incredibly painful. Um, it was, you know, it was a deeply scarring, in the case of, 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 of uh, smallpox, literally a scarring experience. Uh, whereas future concerns in the 1980s and 1990s, and Gareth Millward's written about this with Vaccinating Britain beautifully, is linked to very complex sets of concerns that parents have about specific technologies in the context of specific conditions, diseases. Obviously, the autism scare is linked to, to lots of debate about MMR. And what, what, what the book really shows beautifully is they aren't concerned about the individual vaccines. You know, they would happily take an individual measles vaccine, an individual mumps vaccine, an individual rubella vaccine. They just don't want to have the combination vaccination that's going there. So um, I think our job as historians in this moment, I think, is to really think about how COVID as a disease category mobilizes a very specific anti-vaccine community that may be actually quite distinct from what we saw earlier from people not vaccinating their kids. I mean, remember, kids aren't being vaccinated to a large extent around the world, right? It's all about adults initially. So I think we are talking about slightly different categories here. Um, and then again, obviously, these, these, the, the cultural concepts and memories bleed into each other. Right? You know, when people talk about typhoid vaccination in the 30s and 40s, they actually think about smallpox vaccination often enough. But, you know, I think it's just unraveling the infectious disease, unraveling the people who are getting vaccinated. Are they young men? Are they children, etc.? That would really help, I think, to um, make history a bit more useful when it comes to discussing the ethics and the, the kind of practicalities of vaccine mandates in, in the present. Yeah, I think that's that's a really important point. I'm glad you brought it up because I mean, I think what it suggests is, you know, often even in in in, in some of the, the public scholarly discourse on on vaccination um, in the last year and a half, it almost is framed as the vaccine debate, as it's as if it's some singular thing. And and all of you know that it's not. It's 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 multidirectional. And as Christos Linteris and I were talking about yesterday, it's it's like a kaleidoscope. Actually, it's not. It's not a singular thing that you can talk about. It's something that's actually dis distorted. Um, and you know, Daniel, you mentioned this that it's you know the anti anti vaccination mm -hmm. groups are are groups. They're not they're not singular entities. They're not there's not one cohort of either age or race or gender or, or other kind of categorization with which we can say is anti vax right now. It's it's a it's a kaleidoscope of of interest. And and also like Klaus, your point then it it, it hammers this home even even better, which is that there isn't just one vaccine history or anti-vaccine history either. Um, and so folding that complicated history onto what is a complicated set of political questions today about vaccines and vaccine trust and, and vaccine uptick um, is one that I think like, you're right that one thing historians can do is complicate. <laughs> we can't, we can't do a lot of things well, but we can complicate. And, and I do think that, that, that in, in a real way, as much as like, politicians and, and maybe Daniel, you want to jump in here, like public health officials don't like to hear just stories that are complicated. They want pragmatic solutions here. And what does one do with the pragmatic, like just historians saying what well, this is complicated? Um, 
I do think that that it's it's actually much more it's more pragmatic than we maybe give it credit for. Oh, I mean, I, I think so completely. I mean, and I think, you know, I, I'm sort of just thinking a little bit about putting Nadia and Klaus's points together, right? So one of the things to Nadia's point, and this is some of what sort of I've been sort of suggesting when people sort of ask me, what do you think about the, the, the law and ethics of these vaccine mandates, right? You know, partly one of the things that I've been thinking about is to Nadia's point is historically, we know that the, the existence of the mandate itself prompts a certain percentage of vaccine hesitant people to go get vaccinated, actually a large percentage, right? And that's what's really important. For me, I'm like, people always want to know, but what about implementation and enforcement of these vaccine mandates? And part of my response is, I don't care at all about those kinds of things based on the evidence of this from a policy history perspective. Because the evidence of this, especially in North America and in the West in general, but especially in North America and the US is like, you know, there's a certain percentage of people who I call never going to getters. Right. Those people are just never going to get a vaccine. It doesn't matter what you do. So why worry about them as far as I'm concerned? Like these people are just never going to get vaccinated. Okay. Right. We don't need this 5%. It's not a huge number traditionally, right? We don't need these 5%. We just need to capture a substantial percentage of the people who could be motivated to get a vaccine. Right. And the evidence is pretty compelling that the existence of a mandate alone actually um, turns a significant percentage of these people into people who go get vaccines, right? With other diseases in the past, the Klaus's point, right? So partly what I've always said is, look, let's go ahead and get these vaccines. It doesn't make any difference whether you enforce them or not from a public health law perspective. It doesn't matter. Don't spend one red cent on enforcing a vaccine mandate. You know, pass the mandate, enact it, indicate that this is what's expected, that people are now required, you know, adults are now legally required to go get these vaccinations in these contexts. And the evidence from the past, this is connecting sort of past policy to present, right? The evidence from the past suggests that this is a pretty effective means to capture, you know, anywhere from 10 to 15% of a vaccine hesitant, you know, the sort of large population of vaccine hesitant. That's, if we're talking about on the national level in the US, capturing 10 to 15% of people who aren't vaccinated yet is enormous, right? I mean, that's a huge benefit from our perspective. I am mindful, though, and this is the last thing I'll say about this, of Klaus's point that maybe COVID-19 is different, you know, and maybe the evidence we have from these mandates in the past actually doesn't translate that well into predictions. I, I don't know the answer to that. I still think we should try to find out, by the way, but I'm not sure. Just one point. I mean, I would say look at France um, and look at the huge surge in vaccine uptake following the Pass Vaccinal and Pass Sanitaire which were implemented there. So I think against, you know, just, just to hammer on the kaleidoscope point, um, I don't think many European commentators would have predicted that France would have had a high vaccine uptake going into this, but it seemed to work. Um, whereas Germany is in endless debates about whether to, to implement this or not. And Italy has, um, you know, become building on the, on the measles implementation, also taking quite a radical step forward. So um, I think looking back at COVID, we will really see this fragmentation across different political systems. Um, but yeah, just, just to kind of re-emphasize the point. And yeah. it seems like it's worth saying too that not all vaccine hesitancy is a bad thing, that historically actually people who've pushed back or resisted or questioned have led to better scientific outcomes. They've you know, pushed the government to make different kinds of investments in science to change the way things were doing. People were doing vaccinations, as Klaus suggests, that sometimes it's the process in which the vaccination is delivered. That's the problem. And certainly in Britain, when they stopped having people go to public vaccination centers, which were often in like workhouses and places that people didn't want to go, and they started doing it door to door in people's homes, made a huge difference. And, and that came straight out of anti-vaccination resistance. So I also think it's really important to keep in mind that 
you know, sometimes for public health officials, anti-vaccinators are the bad guys in the story, but that's not always the case. They can actually contribute to knowledge about vaccines by raising important questions about how we do things. Hmm. Yeah, go ahead, Klaus. Just to jump in, I completely agree with that point. Um, and I think that, you know, we could link that to the development of adverse effect compensation laws uh, across different cultures, which are a result of, of regulators having to deal with the fallouts of vaccine campaigns for people who willingly undertook to vaccinate themselves or their children and then who had to deal with the fallouts going forward. Malte Thiessen has written about this in the context of Germany with the um, uh, with with the Germans looking at the at the British um, at the exemption clauses during the Weimar Republic when they had compulsory vaccination, but actually much more prominently during the Nazi era, where the Nazis were actually much less compulsory in the enforcement of lots of the vaccine clauses going forward. And I think looking at communities which bear the fallout, and these are obviously often communities which are the least well researched because their bodies don't comply with the norm of the clinical trial going forward is absolutely crucial going forward. So, you know, I think it's very important for historians to, to raise the cause of that community. And then also to, um, and I was part of a group trying to do this in, in late 2020, to make the case that we need to embed um, compensation clauses in every vaccine rollout going forward in a much more effective way than we've previously done it. Uh, it's very complicated to report adverse effects. And it's actually very, very complicated to get compensation uh, acknowledged for many of these things. So I think this is a really big moment of reflection um, where obviously mandates work, but I think perhaps the public health community hasn't done enough necessarily to take care of those who also suffer the fallouts. And I think the public health community hasn't, I think, done a very good job of helping us to understand the risk of vaccines. I, I feel like they didn't provide, and this is true for childhood immunizations in general too. You know, when you take your child to the pediatrician, they give you this piece of paper. It's very long and very wordy about all the things you're supposed to understand about this vaccine. Nobody understands those things. I have a PhD. I don't understand those things. And so it would be a lot easier um, if they presented things visually to you would, would help you to understand, well, what are the risks of this vaccine? You know, one little person over here has an adverse reaction compared to, you know, one million people over here who do not. And so helping us to understand what does risk look like? It's pretty risky to put your child in a car and drive them to daycare, you know, twice a day that actually most children are who are injured or die, that, that's having something to do with traffic accidents, with cars. You know, what does that look like versus the risk of a vaccine? So, you know, if I had a single message for the public health community, it would be help us to understand risk and what is risky about a vaccine versus other kinds of behavior that we willingly engage in every single day with ourselves and our children. Um, that I think that would be extremely useful. Daniel, you want to jump in? So. Um... That's super fascinating, Nadia. So um, I was speaking uh, yesterday. Um, I was interviewing with uh, New York Times reporter Amy Walker, who's uh, working on a COVID visualization article. And like now that so many people are like we're so many people are calling COVID endemic wrongly, but they're doing it. So they're, that is just a discourse now. So it's a thing. Um, and so many so many local governments and institutions are removing mask mandates and um, moving away from from known to work preventive strategies, um, how might we continue in new and novel ways in the media? Her question to me was visualize 
COVID and the risk for COVID? Because I mean, I think like one of the things that, and this is something that you've written on Daniel, so maybe get your response first to this. What I think this new phase, and it's not entirely new, but I think it's 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 more sharply pronounced, is like now what what the, the US government and, and many other governments in Europe are telling their citizens is like, the response to COVID is gonna be your responsibility. It's just all thrusted down the individual. And I say that's not new because I think that's largely been the response in many countries from, from, from day one. But now it seems to be even accelerated that it's just about calculating individual risk. And, and, and I think, and I've said this very publicly, so I don't, I don't mind saying this in, in this program either. I think one of the failures in the public health community in the last two years has been effective public health communication whether about COVID science, COVID epidemiology, or about now, which I think is a, is more than ever important, and this goes to your point, Nadia, of, of being able to effectively communicate individual level risk. Because like, and I gave the example to where I was like, myself and my partner and my seven-year-old child are all vaccinated. We we exist when we like leave our family unit to do go to school or go to work or do whatever we're going to do outside of our domestic space. Um, we exist as three vaccinated people, but we have a three-year-old as well who's not able to be vaccinated yet. He exists as part of our family unit. When we all leave our domestic space, he has differential risk than the three of us do. That That's true, but I haven't seen anybody visualize that. I don't see public health officials talking about that. I don't see that in, in terms of like an effective, like a real public health strategy of trying to communicate what risk means going forward um, when let's face it, like COVID has already ended um, quote unquote, because of the war in Ukraine. It's at least been, I, I spoke a couple hours ago, um, I had on COVID calls, former Ukrainian um, vice minister of health. And he just told me flat out, he's like the COVID pandemic has ended. Um, he doesn't mean it, of course it hasn't really ended, but no one's talking about it because all eyes are on the war in Ukraine. And like, I don't, I don't mean that we need to like prioritize disaster over disaster, but the reality is, is like in a lot of public discourse, COVID is not, it's not, it's not front page news anymore. Daniel, I want to bring you in about the communication question. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't, um, I, I completely agree, Jacob, with pretty much everything you said and Nadia said. I agree that the, the public health comms has not been good. I mean, I, I, in the U.S. in particular, I'm talking about, I think it's probably been problematic in a lot of places, but in the U.S. it's been abject and, and I, I, I'm not a communications expert, but I can't, I can't fathom, I do work closely with them and I can't fathom how anyone, I haven't heard widespread houses of disagreement. I mean, mo most most comms experts who I've talked to agree that it's been problematic, right? I mean, I think we're in in the US and I think probably in a lot of other places, we're in what, I, what I've thought of as, and I've heard this, I'm not sure to whom to attribute it, but I, I'm calling it the DIY phase of the pandemic, right? Arguably we've been in DIY in, in, in American English sense for do it yourself phase of the pandemic, right? So like, you know, we've arguably to your point, Jacob, been in a DIY pandemic since day one in the US, to be honest with you, but I think it's definitely accelerated. I think, you know, why that's happened, I think, you know, how can you possibly explain the fact that, you know, the U.S. was ranked as the most pandemic prepared country on the planet? And then you look at what's happened in the last two and a half years, which I agree to Nadia's point. I haven't been that shocked. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of always shocked and never surprised is how I sort of refer to it. I am shocked. I'm also not surprised. Right. But how can you explain those kinds of things? And, and, and you know, I think there's just a lot of public health people, a lot of my colleagues, you know, we're just we just don't do public health well in this country. We just don't. And it's not because here's the key. It's not because it's a function of technical 
um, ignorance, scientific ignorance, you know, epidemiologic ignorance. It's not even because for want of resources in the wealthiest country in the history of the world, basically, right? It's not for any of those things. It's because doing, and, and you know this, Jacob and Nadia and class, I mean, this is literally what you all do in terms of your scholarship. You all know this better than anybody. You know, effective public health requires collective action. Full stop. I mean, it requires collective action. I was reading um, a tweet thread from Andrew Wehrman, right, who's we're, I'm anxiously awaiting his book on smallpox in the early republic in the U.S. And he made this point that actually, if you compare the infection fatality rates of smallpox and COVID, they're not actually as different as most people think. Most people think smallpox is way more lethal than COVID, but he's like, actually best. I mean, the estimates aren't perfect from the early republic, like, you know, in the U.S., but he's like, the estimates are it's actually it's in the ballpark, basically, mm -hmm. in terms of how many people are actually dying from, from versus recovering um, from catching smallpox. And he's like, you know, they didn't have a fraction of the resources that we have to deal with something like this today, right? But they were able through collective action and a lot of will and organization to, to really, when they came together in the ways that sometimes they were able to come together, they were able to stymie the worst impact of these kinds of things, right? And so, you know, for me, that kind of individualistic approach to public health that never works that isn't public health right and that's what i've been sort of arguing for a year for a couple of years now that it actually you know begging millions of people to behave in salubrious or health promoting ways is actually not public health you know public health it, it just isn't right i mean like so the example i've give i've given and jacob i think you've seen this but not everybody who's listening may have seen may have seen this of course so the example i give is you know what if we just we didn't pass any actual laws regulating the speed you can drive around schools we just said that people hey you know what probably don't drive 65 miles per hour around a school but we trust you so like just please don't or like you know hey you're leaving a bar like yeah i mean please don't drive home drunk please or we told the factories like please don't emit a lot of benzene into the watershed i mean we could pass laws, but instead we're just going to ask you to behave properly. I mean, that's that's not public health, right? And so, you know, to me, that's been just an ongoing failure. And and it's sort of heartbreaking in a sense, Jacob, to watch that it's actually getting worse I, I, for a variety of reasons. I mean, I know people are exhausted. That probably has a lot to do with it. People just had enough. And I, and I can understand that. I'm sympathetic to that. But, you know, it's been it's been hard to watch just how bad um, it's been in the U.S. and how individualized it's been in the U.S., right? Yeah, of course. Um, so... I agree in one sense that obviously lots of the communications have been muddled. Um, I, I taught a course, uh, ironically labeled contagion and control in 2020. Uh, it had been planned in 2019. And um, the um, I, I started with a question of whether we should follow the science. You know, it's the standard historian's question of, you know, actually there is no one science. And there are lots of different things coming together. And also knowledge is constantly evolving. So I think rather than, I guess, putting the blame solely in front of the, the public health community's door. Um, I think what is really interesting about what we've seen now is that obviously the community itself had to adapt at an incredible pace to evolving knowledge about a new pathogen coming forward. So the messaging could never have been consistent, right? I mean, we saw this with the mass debates coming out of WHO, etc. And I think then complicating that is, is this additional thing of we now, I guess, have in a way that in the West, at least, never before, many of us have seen the, the fact that public health and politics are inherently entwined. Um, in the UK, there were these these great statements by SAGE, the, the Council of Scientific Experts advising the UK government, that we can only advise politicians decide uh, about what to do. And yet the advice within SAGE was obviously also a consensus statement that was being made at that point. So communication, getting any kind of robust sense of communication out of that 
situation, I think, would have been a big ask for any community, even of, of great communications experts going into it. And again, I think this is why COVID is so different in, as a real-term experience for us, rather than you know just the historians looking back at the past, because for typhoid, it's quite easy to, to devise effective public health comms, right? We know the disease, we've studied it, we understand it well, we know what kind of access to take, we know what the risk is. We can also visualize that risk quite easily, you know, with the you know usual thing of, you know, here are 10 healthy looking people standing and there's this, you know, one on the floor. Um, but, um, you know, that's, that's, that those, those are the risk visualizations that I can trace back for a century. But I think with COVID, getting the messaging right in a way that would have been consistent um, would have been too big of an ask for any public health community. And then I think all of this then got muddled up in the incredibly polarized political atmosphere we were living through at the beginning of 2020 with many other events having just taken place, <laughs> you know, anyway. Um, so perhaps this is just, you know, to say, uh, I, I do think the public health community could have gotten the messaging better and that following the science is not good communication advice. But then again, the science itself was so complicated that even the scientists themselves um, would never have been able to come up with a consensus statement as 2020 was moving forward. Yeah. That's actually one of the, I want to get Nadi in here, um, but that's actually just another quick reflection why I'm so fascinated with the 1920s and the 1930s in, in epidemiology, because it was at that time when all of this modeling, disease modeling and wave theory really exploded for trying to understand infectious disease. But like those epidemia, those first epidemiologists who were enamored with models and pre the predictive value of epidemiology, which let's face it, that was us in 2000, early 2020. Um, they acknowledged that it was all it was all uncertain. Like the whole premise of of predictive epidemiology is is its inherent uncertainty, and 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 yet um, I think that uncertainty of the science unfolding in real time that you're talking about here, class, um, that that we didn't emphasize the uncertain nature of it, and that would have been okay to 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 say, but I think it. From a political standpoint, from a pragmatic standpoint, no politician wanted to stand up and say, like, these COVID models are uncertain, quote unquote, even though the epidemiologists inherently knew that, like, we just don't have the kind of data or predictive value to to, to, to put much weight in this. And so what I think happened, and, I, and I, I'm trying to reckon with this, and I hope, hope I can get so many people to talk to, is like, I think what ended up happening is by the, the middle of 2020 and the end of 2020, what we had is a lot of people looking around and they're like, the epidemiologists were shit and, and we can't trust them. And that was like well-meaning people who, who, who were probably had some degree of, of faith in the public health establishment. Um, and, and I think that that's mapped onto where we are today and to where I, you know, I look around our landscape and even in the group of, um, you know, people that I'm surrounded with and connected once removed from that were pretty COVID serious in 2020, are, are have just given up. They've just completely given up. Um, I mean, an interesting thing to think about, Jacob, is the ways in which that kind of failure of data comes, you know, in the wake of the failure of data around the elections, two cycles in a row. And so I think it's a kind of larger distrust of data that we're supposed to, you know, rely on. And suddenly the subjective nature of all this data, right, is kind of hitting us in the face. But I kind of wanted to return also to Daniel's earlier point, and I think this is specific to the U.S., is that one of the problems is that in American culture, um, politicians tend to say things like America is the best at fill in the blank. 
And they believe that if you just say that over and over again, it becomes true. So we were the most pandemically prepared country based on what? Like just based on our faith in ourselves. We have the best healthcare system based on what? right? Just based on saying these things over and over. And so we are our own worst enemy in that way, because we don't think we have much to learn from other places about how other places do things. Um, and certainly, you know, nobody thinks they should talk to a historian that there's anything to learn from past experience. It's always like, this is a new experience. And we know how to do this because we're the best. And that's not actually very effective as a, as Daniel would say, as a public health strategy, right? So I did learn something very interesting yesterday. So our, our kickoff of this entire COVID call is like marathon um, started yesterday at five and Christos Linteris and Medica, Monica Green and I were on and Monica um, revealed and she said it was public to reveal now and she did it. So I'll, I'll repeat it. But she was part of a team. Uh, I think she said WHO that pulled together historians of medicine and public health to try to make sense of real like policy in 2020. And their report that they published got completely tabled and never, never used or publicized, which is um, not surprising, but that's another sort of part of the pandemic that someday somebody hopefully will want to write about. I want to um, I want to get you all on one last question um, before before I let you go. And that is we haven't touched on what I think is going to be going forward. One of the most pressing problems with the COVID-19 vaccine, with the ongoing pandemic and um, with how we write this history, and that is global vaccine equity. And, and I wanted to sort of get, get your pulse on how do you think we got here with, with global vaccine inequity, to call it what it is, um, and, and, and what maybe you think, um, what, what, what do we have to do going forward to address that? Klaus, let's start with you. You've, you know, you've written on, on this pretty centrally. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a big final question to end on, <laughs> you know, the, the, the future. Um, so, um, I guess, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with the premise of your question. I think this will be the defining question looking back at COVID-19 is did anything change in terms of the infrastructures put in place to achieve rapid scale up of vaccines following this pandemic? And, um, you know, when, when I was reading, reading your notes ahead of this meeting, um, I just tried to think about, you know, what's new about this pandemic. And I think, you know, to really summarize it in three points, the technology, the platform technologies that we've seen are so scalable and they are so rapidly adaptable in a way that none of the previous vaccine generations that we have seen have been. Um, the trials infrastructure that we've seen working at pace across the world has been absolutely incredible. When the epidemiologists actually, I have to kind of like, you know, break a lance for them here, or who also got a lot of stuff right in lots of other countries, you know, think about, for example, uh, some Asian responses to the pandemic, you know, with, with rapid public health advice and the modeling being quite accurate with what's going on there. Um, when, when the modeling led to a lockdown in the UK and there weren't enough COVID cases to trial the AstraZeneca vaccine, Trial sites were available due to previous connections in Brazil and South Africa and the US to take these trials forward. And the third kind of big thing I think that we've seen in the case of this pandemic in terms of equity, perhaps the most important thing going forward, is a real evidence of shifting power dynamics globally of where vaccines are being manufactured. I mean, in our call here, 
we've been very Western. Like we've only really focused about Western vaccines. We haven't spoken about Sinovac, uh, the the Cancino vaccine. We haven't talked about Sputnik, even though those are the vaccines that a large part of the world's population has had in their arms are the first that they have encountered, not just in Asia, but in large parts of Africa and Latin America. So actually, you know, that would have been a great conversation also to have in this context with regards to that. So we are seeing the shift of biomedical manufacturing power. We've got the new technologies and we have uh, seen these trials infrastructure. And yet, unfortunately, we haven't seen any meaningful international response that has brought these things together in a way that pushes vaccine availability uh, out of HICs and MICs, uh, so high-income countries and middle-income countries, in a way that they are actually available to be effective in low-income countries. And so, you know, that is, I think, where the past kind of throws a long shadow over the equity discussion nowadays, is that, um, you know, for all of the talk about preparedness and innovation and research and development that we've had in the West specifically, we have failed to invest in meaningful manufacturing capabilities outside of the West. And that has both been to our detriment with vulnerable supply chains, as we've seen, but it's mostly been to the detriment of the poorest in the world. So I hope that going forward out of this moment of shared vulnerability that we had in 2020 and now no longer have because we've, you know, hoarded the vaccine supplies for ourselves, that is where we would go forward, um, building on the historical success of collective action when it comes to trials and technology, but the absolute failure when it comes to actually providing the means of production. Yeah, well, that's that's so brilliant. Thank you for sharing share, sharing that. Nadia, I want to get you on this point, and then and then Daniel. I don't have anything as brilliant as Klaus to say about that, but I think I thought about it while you were asking the question in two different ways. Just one, that this is all part of these long legacies of colonial mentalities where the West takes what it needs from other places, um, uses them as resources without investing in them on their own terms for their own success and um, survival. Um, so there's this is part of that, I think, that colonial mentality. But on the other side of that, I also think to Daniel's kind of pragmatism, is that what's really new about COVID, this is a huge major global pandemic existing at a moment in which we have um, airline travel around the world. And that makes it very, very hard to control in a way that, you know, when we were traveling by boat and there were, there was that ability, right, to kind of let time help. Um, curb the pandemic, this kind of instant ability to travel means that you cannot pretend that we are somehow safe in the West if we are vaccinated, if the whole world isn't vaccinated. So there's that kind of real pragmatic issue of movement, mobility of people around the world. And if we don't share our vaccines, it's not good for us either. But I think we should think about this in that kind of longer trajectory of what the West is always doing, which is what it did with HIV stuff as well, which was experiment in Africa, but not actually make those medicines widely available. Wow, thank you so much. Daniel? Yeah, I don't, I mean, obviously, I, after, after class and Nadia have waited, there's not much I can add, I don't think at this point. But the, the, the only thing that I can say that I've sort of just been thinking about in, relevant to these historical pathways is like, you know, the critics of global health politics and global health work and what Johanna Crane has referred to as the global health industry, right? Like, like this has been going on now in a good way for 10 or 15 years, at least as it should be. Right. And so, you know, the critiques have always been along the lines that 
correctly when I say not always in a bad way, but correctly, you know, along the lines that Klaus and Nadia have pointed out that, look, global health seems like it's as much a creature and a function of these pathways of colonialism and imperialism as anything else and whiteness and white supremacy, of course, right? So so why would we be surprised when we see the same kinds of patterns cropping up in global health? We shouldn't be. And so it's almost like, although I don't think the, these critics meant it this way, it's almost like a warning bell because now we've got a global health crisis that we really need some solidarity on, right? You know, to Nadia's point, even if not not for ethical, political, and legal perspectives, just from a self-interest pragmatism, for goodness sake, for not to Nadia's point, right? And we still can't do it. We can't do it because of these pathways, right? Because of these things, you know, we haven't talked much about the pharmaceutical industry, but the connections to intellectual property and the legacies of colonialism and imperialism and racism and ableism that make up these sort of industries and 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 their connection to the world and you know, um, you know, I'm not calling you out class, but you know, the history of welcome and things like that as well, you know, um, and I love welcome by the way. So, so, so please don't, please don't, please don't come at me with, 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 um, pitchforks. Right. Um, you know, but, but, you know, I think that's to me, the, the only thing I think of is, wow, like, you know, the, the, the critics have been pointing out these features, these sort of historical and structural features of this giant enterprise for at least a couple decades now. And sure enough, lo and behold, when we most needed in a public, a global public health emergency and crisis, when we most needed the sense of solidarity, we most needed to overcome, you know, the, the past has, has just proved far too powerful as again, right? Unsurprisingly for those of us with historical training, these structures are just so deeply rooted, so immense, so vast. They've been going on for so long. They just swallowed up. You know, so far, at least, they've pretty much swallowed our ability to show this kind of solidarity that we need to get through this all together. And that's been sort of sad, obviously, and, and catastrophic for everybody, for us in the West, and of course, most of all, for the least well-off or, 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 and the most structurally deprived around the world. Yeah. Oh, thank you both. Thank you all for, um, for such insightful ways to, to end this that I'm going to not be able to stop thinking about. But I'll, I'll just mention... One thing to end us um, here today in this discussion is that, you know, I think one other one other point that that the history of of global health I think implores upon me is it's also not too late to have a global re response to COVID nineteen. Um, we we I mean Klaus is right is that we failed to have a global response so far, and I think that writing the history of of the first two years of COVID nineteen that will be front and center, um, but as all of my friends who study infectious disease and the evolution evolution of infectious disease can tell you, um, we're not done. COVID is not done with with the human uh, and and non-human animal world, and and it's not too late for a, for a global international response to this to this disease. And I think like that too, history can help us to see that as well. Um, and and you know, I think I'm worried about that. Looking at what's happening with the war in Ukraine and how um, seemingly the, the rest of the world is just watching as, as disaster and death just happens every single day, um, without a unified international response, but, um, but it's still not too late to address the, the global pandemic. So, um, I, uh, this is COVID calls episode 486. We're almost there, um, to 500, uh, and, uh, we will be there by tomorrow. So I want to, I want to thank my three guests today, Nadia Durbeck, Klaus Kirschella, and Daniel Goldberg for sharing this space, for sharing their expertise. Please follow them. Please, please read their work. They are absolutely brilliant in everything they do. So thank you all so much. 